Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. As part of this podcast partnership with Brick and L Magazine, I want to give a podcast shout out to Amarillo National Bank online at anb.com and Rockwood Furniture online at rockwoodfurnitureco.com. Learn more and subscribe to Brick and Elm at brickandelm.com. Today's guest is Trevor Cavanis. Trevor is the president of Cavanis Beef Packers, which is a multi-generational family business with processing locations in Amarillo and Hereford, along with a presence in Idaho, which we talk about, and products that are sold around the world. Now, cattle has been a big business in Amarillo ever since the city was founded, and Cavanis is a major player. But they stand out because they're a privately owned business in a world dominated by giant corporations. So we talk about all those things in this episode, including the stuff you don't typically think about when you buy a steak or ground beef at the grocery store. Here's Trevor Cavanis. Trevor Cavanis, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Jason. Glad to be here. Appreciate the opportunity. Well, it's it's good to have you. I I appreciate it. I know you're a busy guy. and I want to start with you, though, the same way that I start with all of my guests and ask you why you're in this area. So what brought you to Amarillo in the first place? Well, I guess I was fortunate enough to be born in Amarillo. Mm-hmm. Um, I think born in the old St. Anthony's Hospital Okay. Uh, in 1975. So um, grew up in Hereford, Texas. But um, I think like like a lot of people in the surrounding areas, Come, uh, came to Amarillo, yeah, came to, be to, Amarillo born. to be born. So, and then uh, lived in Hereford until I was nine years old. And then our family um, moved to Amarillo. I know that you are part of a multi generational family business. So, what can you tell me about like your family? Do you know why they came to the Texas Panhandle, or what brought them here in the first place? Um, my grandfather was a lifelong cattle buyer and cattle trader, and uh, really had raised his family on nothing but uh, buying and selling cattle. Okay. And in 1962, he bought a small meat locker plant in uh, Hereford, just on the west side of Hereford, and uh, started um, Cavanus Packing Company. Um, so we've been around for 60, 60 years now. Um, he started it in 62, and, and my father got out of college, uh, Texas Tech, in 1969, and and then came directly into the business, and uh, so uh, it's been a family family business ever since '62. Where did your grandfather uh, live before he moved to this area? Was he doing stuff elsewhere in Texas, or he he lived in uh, New Mexico and in Texas Panhandle, both. Okay. So um, he was a cattle buyer for a couple other meat and beef packers. Uh, prior to um, buying the locker plant and, right. and starting our own. So he lived in Amarillo a while and Clovis a while and Hereford and a couple other other stops, but mm-hmm. generally in this area. Do you know why he chose Hereford as a place to kind of get started? Really, I think it was just there was that opportunity that right. presented itself. and and uh, wasn't like a specific strategy or targeted that area or anything. That was just where the... Opportunity. That's was. where the opportunity was, and um, as we know, in the '60s and '70s, Hereford really boomed mm-hmm. um, with the feed yard industry. Really took off and grew, and uh, makes us one of the larger 
larger areas or, or maybe the epicenter of beef yeah. production in America. So you moved from Hereford to Amarillo when you were nine. That's a pretty big change. I mean, her, even with Hereford in sort of a, a boom position, and Amarillo is still a lot bigger. What do you remember about that move? For sure. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Um, you move from a, I, I guess if you live in a satellite um, town, um, Amarillo is, was seen as the hub and, and was always the place to go shopping and mm-hmm. go out to eat and go to movies or do those things as a kid. So um, then with the opportunity to move to Amarillo, it was, uh, it was tough because you had all your childhood friends and uh, moved to a, a larger city can be intimidating and bigger, bigger schools and bigger classrooms. Mm-hmm all the way around um, is a learning curve, um, but um, wouldn't trade it for anything. Hereford was great, um, and, and Amarillo's been great. Where did you go to school in Amarillo? In Amarillo, went to uh, St. Mary's uh, okay. for fifth and sixth grade, and then went to Austin Middle School and Tascosa High School. When you graduated from Tascosa, um, and I always like asking this with somebody who's in a family business. Is it assumed that you'll go into the family business, or was that kind of a choice that you had, whether to go that direction or kind of go your own way? You know, it was never something that uh, I guess my father Terry he he uh, he he never said you're going to come back and do this, and it wasn't mandated. It wasn't assumed. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, he's he's very open-minded and, and just wanted, um, I guess, figure out, you know, it, all of us are individuals and you need to figure out where your strengths are and, uh, take opportunities as they come. So I went off to, uh, SMU in Dallas mm-hmm. and got a finance degree and real estate finance degree and interned, um, in, in that field and, and enjoyed that a lot. Um, after I graduated SMU, I went to TCU Ranch Management okay. um, and did that. Um, that really was something that I had always wanted to do just because it's, you know, beef animal production is um, the backbone of beef packing business right, and, and right. Uh, need to under, understand everything from the beginning and understand how uh, important the ranchers and dairymen uh, and feed yard operators are to the whole beef business. And so did that. I never, I guess, had worked in our company growing up uh, weekends and summers and and done that as as a job. Dad always um, wanted us to be, um, I guess, responsible and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and be hardworking. And uh, those are great. I used to have. What kind of work was that? What did that look like for a teenager in teenager, a packing plant? In a packing plant, there was box making and, and sweeping and pushing cattle in the cattle drive and alleys and, and working with the maintenance department. And, and also we had a couple small product um, construction projects and, and working with the construction crews on those. So um, they were the... Um, Oh, it's just great, you know, really opportunity to be around mm-hmm. folks and, and learn a variety of the facets of, 
a beef packing. It's not all about knives and cutting. Right. There's a lot more that, that goes into it. Was that interesting enough to you as a kid though? I mean, like, did you enjoy that work or was it like, Oh, I got to go, got to go sweep the floor again. Or I got to do this menial labor. It was interesting because just being part of the family and uh, being a family business, it was interesting to me to, to kind of be part of it. And uh, now some jobs I like better than others, obviously. Um, and so it's, it was all great. Um, was it something when I went off to college that I said, yes, for sure, I'm mm-hmm. coming back? Um, no, I did not know that at the time I wanted to go to school, see what opportunities presented themselves and, uh, then figure out, um, ultimately what I wanted to do. What did you do um, after, after college then? So did you I, come immediately back? Well, did I did. I uh, after SMU mm-hmm. went there and then went to TCU Ranch Management. Spent a couple months uh, really trying to decide did I want to stay in DFW mm-hmm. in the real estate um, type business or um, come back. And really, at that time, it was the decision was um, as a young person. There's a lot of uh, the. A lot of young folks in 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 larger cities, and and uh, so a lot of fun to be had. Yeah. But I knew ultimately that you know fun is just temporary, and and uh, need to get on a on a long term path. And knew that the family business was something I was part of, and fortunate enough to have the opportunity to to make it hopefully make a difference in, and uh, so decided to come back. Um, versus stay doing something else for mm-hmm. three or four years and then come back. I guess that was the ultimate decision that made me come back directly. I didn't want to spend three or four years doing something unrelated yeah, and then start over again um, in the family business. And there, were, there was enough going on in our business to, um, to come back and and uh, hit the ground running. Okay. What so. did that look like when you first joined? I mean, it, coming in as, you know, generation three, um, obviously, you know, there's there's probably some some more leadership roles available to you than there might have been to somebody else. But also, you're just coming right out of SMU and TCU, and you didn't have a lot of real world experience. So how, when you're in a family business like that, where do you come in and, and what do you do first? Well, there was an opportunity, um, an opening that presented itself a couple months exactly after um, after I graduated TCU that we had an opening in logistics to run okay. the uh, freight for our meat loads and refrigerated loads out of the plant in Amarillo. And uh, so my first job was, was doing the logistics. Okay. Um, and that's just like so. managing trucking and shipping and it is, all yes, that kind of stuff. Yes, incoming and outcoming okay. loads, you bet. Tell me what you learned in doing that. Like the you know, you're you're going to be getting more and more of a sense of what the business is and how it works, you know, the more immersed you get into it. You're not going to know that as a kid sweeping floors. So what, you know, those those first few positions that you had, what did that kind of teach you about what Cavanis does and and why it's important? Well, I think it was um, when you're dealing with logistics and in, inbound and outbound freight, really you're kind of tied to the daily production of, of the facility. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, that's something that kind of never stops. So in doing that, was able to really get a heartbeat of what it took to run an operation um, just because you're dealing with the logistics on both ends. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you've got the people equation of the plant and what the plant is able to produce or not produce based on daily projections and who shows up. Yeah. And uh, so, and also the types of products that you thought were coming in versus what are sold going out. So really it, it, uh, great experience for, for getting the heartbeat of what, um, a production facility does every day. And really it doesn't sleep. There's, there's production going on during the day and then there's cleanup at night and maintenance on all sides and in between. So what can you tell me just about the scope of production? at Cavanus and in the various facilities, um, you know, how, how much, how much cattle comes through? How much beef do you produce on an annual basis? I mean, what does that look like today? Okay. Well, today we do, um, 2,900 head of beef per day in our Hereford facility. Okay. And then we do around 1,800 head per day, um, in our Idaho facility, CS beef packers. And then in Amarillo, we have a grind plant um, that we grind a million to a million point five um, pounds per week okay. at that facility. Um, but in the whole scheme of the beef world, we're still, we are a medium-sized beef packer. We process, oh, right around a million head per year. Um, but that would put us at probably three or four percent of total beef production um, in the U.S. In the U.S., okay. Yeah. How does that compare to some of the larger, you know, let's call them corporate as opposed mm-hmm. to family-owned, the, the big corporate beef packers, uh, one of those facilities, what might they produce a year? How does that compare to the Just the, trying to the get larger, an idea. Yeah, 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 yeah I mean, yeah. like oh, the context and in, in size, if you think of Tyson Foods or, or someplace like that, yeah. like is it a similar amount? They just have more facilities or do they have much larger facilities? Okay. The big boys, as they're called, the big four uh, beef packers um, would be Tyson Foods, JBS, National Beef, and Cargill. Okay. Um, and they all roughly are at... 20%, give or take, of the beef production okay. in the U.S. And so we're much smaller. I think we are the sixth largest beef packer in the U.S., but there's a huge drop-off between the top four and then five, five six, is, seven, okay. eight, nine, ten, all the that, way to... That's still substantial, though. Um, and tell me about the Idaho location. When did that happen? Idaho um, location, we, we started production there in 2017, June of 2017. That, that's a partnership with the J.R. Simplot Company. So CS Beef, C is for Cavanus, S is for Simplot, okay. and it's a 50-50 joint venture. All right. Were they another um, family-owned They are plant, a family. Or, they're okay. a family-owned private company, big in potatoes and phosphate mining. They're a much larger family operation than we are. Um, and have been um, one of the largest in the Pacific Northwest. Um, but they they were not in beef packing processing. Okay. They had been 20 years ago and then uh, got out and 
but since then they've they've wanted to be back in and had been looking for the right partner to get back in and and they came to us and and we ran all the numbers and looked at the demographics of cattle in that area and came to an agreement on this is a good location to build a beef plant. And uh, so in 2015, we started construction. And by 2017, we processed our first head. And, okay. And here we are five years later, and, uh, and and the plant's doing very well. When you think about that being a good partnership, uh, and I'm just thinking, you know, from a, a business perspective, is it because of the location and logistics and shipments of cattle and all that stuff? I mean, is, is there value to you in having a plant you know, this further north and, and west of here? It, there is. Um, you know, for one, having a partner that's from that area. Mm-hmm. We were not from that area and and uh, definitely knew our limitations in not knowing um, that. And so... You wouldn't they, have just gone there by yourself to not, set something up. We would, Most likely, we would, we would not have done that. We knew that um, they added value mm-hmm. by being already... Um, planted there. And so that was an asset just from state regs and county regs and, and, uh, dealing with land and different laws and, and whatnot. Uh, they were huge asset in doing that. Okay. And then the people part of the process and HR and legal matters, um, a big part, but we brought the processing expertise. And, um, so it's been a good partnership. I know that you've also um, actually started building a new facility here in Amarillo that's that's in a different location. I wonder if you could tell me about, you know, the, the benefits of that and, and why you made that decision. I guess um, we we built our, our uh, new facility in Hereford in 2005, the first phase, and we've added on to that facility four times since, mm-hmm. and it's continued to grow. Then we built the Idaho facility, and I think through that experience, we we realized that state of the art new plant just really do a lot more, and it's a better route to go than than adding on to an existing plant. Right. You can build in the efficiency changes. Yeah, um, with it's a different time today, food safety wise, and and new technologies and state-of-the-art equipment and things that are hard to cobble into an older facility when you can build new and design it from a greenfield type project. Hopefully design it right the first time Mm -hmm. with room to grow. And uh, that's proven itself um, a few times over the past 17, 18 years of, of our big growth. And uh, now the time was right. We're kind of busting at the seams of our existing facility, which was built in 1975. And we've added on to it three or four times. Okay. But now's the time to to make that move to a new plant and uh, new location. And And that will replace the existing Amarillo facility. It will. Is that right? It will. It's ground beef, um, ground beef of all types, fresh frozen beef patties and bulk ground beef. Um, to food service and retail and institutional customers. I know that, um, you know, you, you've talked about food safety. You've talked about the, you know, the pretty progressive values that Cavanus has in 
in an industry that has a lot of misconceptions about it, or maybe there are some, you know, horror stories that people like to tell or, and, and, and that people in Amarillo just don't really know about the cattle industry and, and processing. I wonder if you could tell me some of the things that might surprise people who don't know the business, have never been, um, you know, inside one of your facilities and, and just don't understand it. You know, we go to the grocery store, we, we get our ground beef or we buy our steaks. I mean, what, what do we not get about what you do? Oh, I think there's a lot um, from, and and I'll say the industry has come a long way mm-hmm. in the past 20 or 30 years um, from a food safety standpoint, for sure. Um, in the early 90s, there was a jack-in-the-box positive E. coli um, recall that uh, really shook the industry, and mm-hmm. it was millions and millions of pounds. Um and that was right at the start of when we first started testing for E. coli 0157. And really, um, from then on, the industry has grown. You test more, you find more. So as you find more, you've got to find ways to mitigate that. Every animal that comes in sheds E. coli 0157. Mm-hmm. And so our job as a beef processor is to take off that hide, which is contaminated, and make sure that that carcass is sterile um, by the time it goes to the consumer. So um, there's steam vacuums, pasteurization vacuums, um, hot carcass washes, as well as um, good manufacturing protocol and practices that we put in place that uh, mitigate and reduce E. coli 0157 to the consumer, um, to a, a very, very low level. Hmm. And so that, that's important. I think everybody needs to know that, that, uh, no one's perfect. No process is perfect. And there is a chance for that to be in your, um, products. And that's why you need to cook all products. Right. Well done. Uh, not well done. A steak can be medium, it can be rare, it can be well done. But a hamburger, um, best practice is to cook it 160 degrees plus internally, which is well done. Um, And that's because the outside of that carcass, when it's ground up, can end up on the inside of a burger. Um, And so that burger needs to be well done. A steak, on the other hand, is sterile on the inside. The outside gets seared, Mm -hmm. it's going to be cooked. It's going to be great. The, the inside sterile on a steak, not the case on hamburger. So want to cook it to well done. Are those things like always in your mind when you're eating, when you're going to a restaurant, when you're cooking at home? Like, Sure. <clears throat> somebody like me, I just don't, I don't think about any of that stuff. And yeah. that's your world. And so I, yeah, I wonder how that impacts whether you're shopping at the grocery store or, you know, cooking food at home. You bet. It does. Yeah. Food safety is, is top of mind and really drives our business. We can't each and every day, it, it's not how many head we get out. It is what is the right speed to produce mm-hmm. a food-safe product and be clean. Um, when I first started in the business in 98, our lab fees, our micro lab fees were around $5,000 a month. And today they're over $200,000 a month. Wow. Just in testing. And so that's how far the industry has come to ensure we have a food safe product going to 
the customer. Is that an internal consumer. testing or is that an external, like third party? Do you do you do both? It's it's actually we um, ship all of ours to a third party okay. lab, and that lab does all of our testing daily. And so that yeah, that's just a and constant it, analysis. It's then constant. Um, we lot and test all all products hmm. and and receive negative results before they're released. Okay. What else has changed in the industry since you've been involved, you know, over the past 20 years? I know it's been a lot beyond the food safety stuff. How else has it changed? I'd say animal welfare. Um, the, that spotlight was really shown on it and uh, probably 10 to 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. And the industry's really made great strides in animal welfare and care and handling um, of animals. And uh, so we have, we have a very... Um, stringent animal welfare practice at the plant and guidelines that we follow dealing with animals. But it's helped all in the industry, um, starting at the ranch or starting at the dairy or in mm-hmm. the feed yard. I'd say the beef industry has done a great job of upgrading animal care and handling. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about you know, some of the challenges, well, as many of the challenges as you want to talk about, but of, of coming into a family business where, you know, your your dad or your granddad have started it and you're, you know, the next generation probably have new ideas about how to do things or, you know, you've, um, you're just coming from a different mindset. And so you've got to merge all of that kind of uh, old guard and new guard, but it's with family members, not just with some CEO. How, how does that work? Is Is that... Easier than I think it is, or is that as hard as I think it might be? Yeah, it, it can be, you know, I wouldn't say it's hard. I, I guess blessed to, to have a uh, very understanding father that that uh, has always led by example and, and taught us a good work ethic, my brother Reagan and I. And, and so we've always got along very well um, as the three of us as owners mm-hmm. and family members. But some, some have... Uh, Tougher times than others, but but what I can tell just by um, being part of our family and and then hearing seeing other stories of other families that we we have it pretty well. Um, we all get along and we keep it pretty simple. At this point, it's three of us. Yeah, and uh, really, what also um, I think helps is there's there's plenty of work for all to do and do separately. And uh, we're all individuals, and we all have strengths and weaknesses, but um, we've all kind of migrated to where our strengths are okay. in, in the company. And uh, like Dad and Reagan, they really deal with the, the livestock and the cattle procurement side and, and uh, harvest side of the business. And I'm more um, food safety, um, processing, and uh, marketing. Okay. Side. So, so there's never a, a time when you're like, Dad, you got to let go of this. I would think a, an older generation is going to hold on to the way that they did it for a long time. And the newer generation is going to say, well, we got to change. We got to, you know, th- this is a new world. Marketing's different now. And, and there's sort of a push and pull between ideas. But if you're all working in your strengths, you know, maybe you don't have to deal with that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, it and it helps because we're all plenty busy and we're not on top of each other arguing about you know, one little thing or that. We don't have much idle time to deal okay. with, with uh, some of that. So that definitely helps. Um, but there are there are always things that come up and direction that 
that uh, one of us may feel stronger than the others about. And, and there's always time that one thing constant in life is change. Mm-hmm. So we're always evolving and changing and hopefully for the better. If we want to change and do something, it's been pretty easy. Doesn't matter who is leading that charge. Um, we can always try it. If it doesn't work, we'll change again. Yeah. And so it's it's worked very well. Speaking of those changes, I know that you know you've you've said the industry itself has changed a lot in the past twenty years. I assume it'll change a lot in the next twenty years. I mean, what are some of the ways that you think what you do, whether it's at the plant, whether it's the cattle industry as a whole? I mean, how is that going to be different? You know, a decade from now, two decades from now, what are some of the challenges you're facing and that that need to be overcome? Oh, I guess the biggest challenge in our industry um, for the past fifteen years has been labor. Labor mm-hmm. has been the toughest, and and there's a lot of hard manual labor that goes on in our business or our segment of the beef business, taking a live animal and uh, and getting it into a box um, takes manual work. Yeah, and not always the cushiest jobs or the cleanest jobs or the um, sometimes the dirty jobs. And uh, so finding the labor and the workforce to do that is the number one challenge for our industry. Um, But with that being said, there are um, automation and robotics and things that are um, more and more every year coming about that help mitigate some of those tough jobs. Is there, is there a way that any of those hard jobs will eventually be replaced by robotics? I mean, is, is that in the future, or will there always need to be that human element to it? There's, there will always need to be human ele- element, for sure. On the packet, packaging side, there are a lot of robotics and automation going on right now. But on the harvest and actual deboning parts, there are not many, just because of the varying sizes, shapes, mm-hmm. Um, genetics of each and every beef animal. There's still decision-making, I think, that happens right. Yes. And even with the robotics, it does not necessarily replace people. Mm -hmm. It replaces the types of jobs that um, are going on. So more IT techs and more um, PLC techs and and, uh, different type of skills that uh, come about. But in the end, it, it doesn't really reduce the labor needs. It just changes the type of labor needed. One of the issues that, that I know certainly we're facing in a lot of different areas here in the panhandle is water and, and conservation and worries about the future of water here. And I know that the cattle industry, like that's also a big concern. And I wonder if you have any thoughts about that. I mean, that so much water goes into the feed for cows. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, are there any thoughts about all right what what happens in this area? How do we protect with so many feed yards, so many uh, ranchers here? You know, how do we continue cattle production, but also be good stewards of the limited water that we have here? Mm-hmm. Good question. Good question. Water is uh, extremely important, not just to our region, but almost all every Southwest. single region in the world. It yeah. doesn't matter where you are even beyond the Southwest. It's just water is a very precious resource and uh, a, will become a more and more valuable commodity as years go by. 
for sure, as the world's population continues to grow. Mm -hmm. It's important that we conserve water, that we take care of that natural resource as much as we can. And that's a good question. You know, most, I think it's 83% of water used is um, for farming type applications. Mm -hmm. And it's 17 or 18 or municipality um, applications. So livestock use the water, drink the water, um, but also eat the crops that are grown right. on the farms. And so that will continue to evolve as it has over the past 50 years. Different type crops, variety of crops can be grown um, and it all based on how much the water supply is. Back in the 70s and 60s, there were sugar beets in Hereford and, <laughs> um, and more corn and, and milo and maize. And today, there's not so much of that, but that's due to water. Because those are more, they drink more water, those, those, those crops plants. do. That's yeah. right. That's right. So uh, things will continue to evolve. And uh, there's even now, you know, the cotton that's grown and the different varieties of cotton need less water than prior and can be grown in different climates than than what it was in the past. So I think uh, all of that will just continue to evolve based on the water table in different areas. How do you feel about the future of the cattle industry here in Amarillo? I know it's been such a big part of our past and the growth of the city um, agriculture is, but like, is, is that something, you know, several decades from now, will that still be kind of a central industry in this area? I think so. I think we have a great, um, arid dry climate for, um, large animal production, whether it's, um, on the dairy side for milk and cheese products or the beef side for beef products, um, with a big shot in the arm and a great thing for the state of Texas and for this area was the Texas Tech Vet Center mm -hmm. and Vet School that um, just started their first class last fall. Things like that, when you get higher education involved, um, other ancillary businesses and folks that are in the industry they want to be um, located in a place that produces quality top young talent and offers services, um, especially like veterinarian services and, and plethora of jobs that those students can do when they get out. Um, so that in itself is great, but more than that, it's, it's continued to grow here since the 60s and 70s. And should continue to in the future. Good cost of living, good yeah, climate. Yeah. And uh and the politics here are, are are pretty good. How do you feel, just to kind of wrap this up, you know, you're you're in a third generation family business. A lot of family businesses don't survive past that point. That's that's kind of the the place where either enough changes happen or, you know, the, the industry changes, whatever that is. I mean, do you do you think about your own kids? Do you think about your own family, the fourth generation, and passing it on to them? What, how do you plan for that? I think, um, you know, we've been a family business for three generations and look forward to, to be many more generations. Things will change. Our business has changed a lot mm -hmm. even since, I, since 1998. So uh, I have a son that's 15 and, and uh, 
won't be long before he he will need to be gainfully employed somewhere. Yeah. And uh, do you have a job waiting for him on the you know sweeping the floors or you know making he, boxes any of that stuff? Same thing, you know, part time jobs like that for him. Um, but as far as his career going forward, would love for him to come back if um, that's where his passion, desire, and aptitude is. Um, as well as my brother has a son, and mm-hmm. I have two daughters. And so um, there is there is fourth generation up and coming, but our business will be different. We've been fortunate enough to grow, and with growth comes opportunities and challenges and different set of dynamics than uh, being a smaller smaller company. So there will be plenty of opportunities for each and every one of them to go back into the business if they so desire. Yeah. This podcast is supported by SKP Creative, a full-service agency using traditional and digital marketing strategies. I asked SKP what they wanted to promote for this episode, and their answer was a really simple one. They want you to get vaccinated. Or if you're already vaccinated, get boosted. I got my booster shot several weeks ago, and with so many cases of Omicron in the city right now, it's pretty likely that you will be in the presence of someone with COVID, like today. And people who are vaccinated, and especially those who are boosted, have much lower chances of hospitalization, being placed in the ICU, being put on ventilators, or dying from complications related to the virus. The booster shots are effective, and they're free, and according to the data, are up to 90% effective at preventing Omicron hospitalization. So go get boosted. Thanks to SKP Creative for the reminder and their ongoing support of the show. Okay, I'm back with Trevor Cavanis. Trevor, this is part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum and Canyon on the WT campus. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and one of the most unique parts of its collection is actually on the exterior. Pioneer Hall was built in the 1930s, and this Art Deco structure features more than 100 famous West Texas cattle brands surrounding the entrance. You can learn more at panhandleplains.org. Okay, so the first question I have for you is one that I've been asking most of my guests, and I I think you might have a really interesting answer um, given your industry, but what's one thing the pandemic has revealed to you about this community? Wow, that's a good question. Good question. This pandemic has been I know it's been a challenge for your industry, for sure. It's been a challenge, for sure. Um, But I think for, did you say this community? Yeah, about the people here. But but if you want to talk about, you know, at at the plant, that's great, too. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would just say Amarillo has fared very well when you look at Look at numbers, even though we've had high numbers and, and our hospital systems have been challenged. But but I think Amarillo um, leadership, city leadership, governance has done a good job of getting the vaccinations here and testing. And um, we were one of the, I guess, best in the in the country as far as efficiency, getting yeah. people in and out. At the beginning, we at were. At the beginning. That's right. That's right. Kind of hit a and, plateau. And things have changed. Um, but there's always challenges. And But I think just the resilience and grit of West Texas and Panhandle people in general, we've all kept working, whether that's being at home mm-hmm. or being at a job like ours at a beef processing plant where you can't literally you cannot work from home mm-hmm. and uh so we've we've done a good job of putting 
um, strategies in place and uh, really just worked our way through it and uh, and when we're still working through yeah it. I was more, gonna say more and more challenges a lot of the big stories about outbreaks were at like the Tyson plant and places like that I mean did did you guys do anything different or try to learn from those scenarios I mean were you ever in a position where you know you had to shut stuff down because of, of lack of personnel no, we definitely slowed some things mm-hmm. down and, and the spacing and, and the best practices that were put in place at the plants. I'd say we all learn from each other, um, whether it be the Tysons or Cargills or JBSs. Really, as an industry, um, we leaned on our associations and legal counsel and shared best practices okay. um, in order to get through um, the toughest times of the pandemic. Okay, other than wind, what does this area have too much of? Too much of, other than wind. Because everybody is wind. Another good question. Another good question. Yes. Well, uh, being in the beef business and, and uh, really land is vital um, to large animal production and beef production. And, and uh, I think we have too many mesquite trees yeah, um, they they suck up a lot of water and limit the grass production, especially north of town. Yeah, and uh, so if if we could have less mesquite trees, that would help things. And that's a beef animal production goes. That is a a weird thing because here in Amarillo, like people value trees because we don't have trees. Uh, but then when you're talking about those mesquites and the salt cedars and all that kind of stuff that suck up so much water. Those invasive trees are not always great, you know, especially if you if you need to grow crops for cattle. That's right. That's right. So, yeah. It's a weird position to, to not like trees With our here, annual but, rainfall around here, yeah. it, uh, it's not, the mesquites are, they're bushes, I guess. Further south you go in Texas, they're actual trees. Yeah. Our mesquite bushes could, um, could go somewhere else. What does this area not have enough of? I guess, you know, you hit on it earlier, water. Um, water is the precious resource, and that's true of any state, country, region in the world. I think we all need to be mindful of our water usage. Okay, how do you describe Amarillo to people outside the area? Outside the area, I'd say uh, there's a lot more to Amarillo than what you see driving through town. We're not just a flat tabletop. Mm -hmm. There's a lot to offer, uh, whether it be the canyon, Paladura Canyon south of town or, or rolling hill, flint type areas north of yeah. town. Um, and just there's more than meets the eye. What's your favorite neighborhood in Amarillo? Well, I've lived in uh, Wolfland and Bibbins, and uh, really you kind of hit it on it on the trees. I like trees. Mm-hmm. and Those are uh, good tree neighborhoods. That's right. Those are good good tree neighborhoods. And and I'd say Wolfland probably, uh, just the character of, um, it's the oldest neighborhood and uh, or one of the oldest um, in Amarillo. And, but the character and quality of the homes, they're all pretty unique. Okay, what's your favorite local restaurant? That's a tough one. But I would have to give the edge, I guess, my favorite would have to be OHMS downtown. Do you have a favorite steakhouse as a beef guy? Favorite steakhouse. I think X-Bar does an excellent job. Um, They're they're newer, and and they're on the southwest part of town, but but they do an excellent job. Okay, what's your favorite local coffee shop? 
Coffee shop. I'm not really a coffee shop um, person. I think I'm up early and at the plant and, and don't have too much time for coffee shops. But I'd have to say my, my home Keurig would okay, probably that's be, the place. be the place. All right. And then uh, this is one that I ask guests pretty, uh, pretty often. I want to hear from you. When was the last time you visited the Big Texan? The Big Texan, boy, I think... Uh, Probably four years ago, okay. um, my daughter had a had a birthday get together and and took all her friends out there and and uh, it's a great place to to it's do things. Good like place that. for a party. There's there you go. A lot there to happen go. there. Okay. Well, that concludes the eight straight questions, uh, Trevor. I like to close by asking my guests to endorse something. So, what's one thing you would want listeners to know about or to experience? Know about or experience? As far as Amarillo goes, endorsing something, I I think. Uh, you know, we need to be progressive and stay progressive. And uh, we need things in this city that attract folks here to spend dollars here. And And I think uh, more convention center space mm-hmm. would definitely be an asset um, and will help the economy immensely. Um, and that attracts folks here to spend dollars here. The other um, thing about Amarillo, just quality of life projects. Um, one of them being an aquatic center. We're, yeah. o- we're over 200,000 people and uh, probably the only city of that size with no indoor municipal um, water facility um, that can be used for a myriad of things. But those quality of life things are what attract um, growth and attract people to come to Amarillo. Yeah, we've... Uh... We've voted down the Aquatic Center in the past, and I, I keep waiting for that to come back up on the, the docket, a new plan for that, a new opportunity for it. You bet. Haven't well, seen it yet. Maybe someday. I hopefully. Hope so. Hopefully. All right. Well, Trevor Cavanis, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jason. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to Trevor for the interview. You can learn more about Cavanus Beef Packers at cavanusbeefpackers.com, which has a lot of information about their sustainability and animal welfare practices, both of which I think are really important. Thanks also to Angelina Marie for editing this episode and to my sponsors, SKP Creative and Panhandle Plains Historical Museum. If you like this podcast, I'd appreciate it if you'd give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and leave a review if you want to. As usual, this show exists because of the listeners like you who listen to it every week, so thank you. And also the local people who support it financially through patreon.com slash Hamarello. Hamarello's executive producers include Wilson Lemieux, Josh Wood, Corey Burns, Wes Reeves, Patrick Burns, Jason Burr, Katie Linger, Barbara and Jim Witten, and Jess Heredia, who makes the best pizza in all of Borger. This has been episode 233. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.